1: The Other Hand is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon, Jim, for the end of week edition of The Other Hand. We always say at this point there is a lot to talk about, but boy, uh, it's a question really of what we're going to leave out today. We'll try and keep to time, but I suspect we're going to go over our usual allotted minutes. So bear with us because there is just a ton of stuff to talk about. That's just the economics. We're not going to get into politics today, at least I don't think so. We're going to start with Jim talking a lot about Irish economic data. A lot of very important stuff has come out in the last few days, not least today. I think he's going to start with the Exchequer returns. Always interesting, always vitally important. But we've also had labour market data this week from Ireland. We've had an SME survey that is very, very interesting. We've had Services Purchasing Manager Index for Ireland... Another forward-looking indicator, consumer confidence, and not least the IMF's latest analysis of the Irish economy. We could spend all day talking about all of those, but I hope Jim is able to summarise that in good time. We've had another raft of weak economic data across the euro area. Uh, Mostly it's forward-looking purchasing manager style, forward-looking numbers, and it's all weak. And if I might uh, forestall or at least uh, preempt what I would say about that is that I think there is a case building to say that Jim and Chris have got this one right and that the European Central Bank has made a complete bollocks of its interest rate policy and that interest rates already, in my opinion at least, Jim will share his no doubt, but in my opinion interest rates are too high for current economic conditions in the Eurozone. A ECB board member has been making some inflation forecasts which tacitly justify their stance, which I think is a load of rubbish. We've had the all-important U.S., what's called the non-farm payroll. It's an anachronistic title. It's the labor market data for the states. And it suggests that finally, finally, the U.S. labor market story is starting to soften, not falling off a cliff by any stretch of the imagination, but it was weaker than expected warrants some discussion, not least in terms of the all-important market reaction to that. We've been talking a lot in recent weeks about the turmoil in global bond markets led by the US. And boy, has it been a big week in bond markets, in the US Treasury bond market. Interest rate expectations have been coming down. Bond yields have been falling. That's great news for anybody that has debt and not least governments, but also for anybody listening that has a mortgage, either in the UK or the US, interest rate expectations have been changing quite dramatically this week. Allied to that, all these dots can be joined. This is the second week in a row that oil prices have fallen. Not a lot, but a bit. Energy prices have been better behaved this week than they have been of late, which again is encouraging, but I think is linked to that weak economic story. I think energy markets are getting worried about demand for oil and gas, hence uh, some small falls in prices there. But Jim, why don't you take us through that rather long list, as quick as you can, of Irish economic and other news?
2: Uh, No pressure, Chris. Uh, Good to talk again. Um, And I love your use of that technical term to describe the ECB's interest rate policy. The end October exchequer returns published today showing a deficit of £0.9 Compared to a surplus of 7.3 billion in the same period last year, uh, there are technical factors at play here. There's over 4 billion put into a national savings fund earlier this year. So that's impacting. Also, there was a significant decline in non tax revenue. Some of that is to do with a significantly reduced surplus being transferred from the central bank. Uh, but there's also some stuff with um, NAMA and so on that's impacting the timing here. But I guess it's the breakdown of the tax take that's of real significance. In the first 10 months, 66.5 billion collected in total, 2.5 billion higher than last year. That's a growth rate of about 4%. So that's a healthy picture. But going under the bonnet, some interesting snippets come out of that. The income tax take at 25.7 billion, up 1.8 billion, 7.6%, very strong. Reflecting the ongoing strength of the labour market, the VAT take at 17 billion, up 1.6 billion or 10% on the same period last year. Very strong number reflecting um, strong growth in car sales, which are up by about 15.7% so far this year. But also a reasonably healthy level of consumer spending, albeit slowing. But then the the really interesting piece is the corporation tax take. 15.7 billion collected in the first 10 months. That's 435 million lower than the same period last year. And that's the first time, I think, since we started this podcast that I have mentioned a corporation tax take that's actually down on the same period a year earlier. That's a decline of 2.7%. And in the month of October, and I stress that October isn't a huge month for corporation tax. November really is the big month. During the month of October, 1.28 billion was collected. That was 1 billion lower than last October, 45% decline. Okay. And this most significantly is the third consecutive month um, in which there has been significant weakness on the corporation tax side. There is reason to be concerned about that at this stage. I I think it, it does play into the Narrative that's been thrown out by the various ministers for finance and public expansion reform about the need for a cautious approach to fiscal policy, uh, about the, you know, the illusion or the constant references that are being made to the vulnerability of the corporation tax side. Those concerns weren't actually reflected in the budget. It was a very expansionary 14 billion package. But um, there is certainly weakness coming through in the corporation tax side. And we have always said this for the last couple of years in discussing this stuff, that every time we see positive news coming out of the tech sector or the chemical and pharma sector globally, uh, we rub our hands knowing that this will reflect itself in a significantly strong performance on the Irish corporation tax side, because all of these things are related. Now we're starting to see the flip side. There's a correction happening in the chemical and pharmaceutical sector globally, including in this country. And um, on the technology side, uh, we got pretty disappointing results from Apple overnight. Okay, disappointing in the sense that profitability is okay, but the forward guidance isn't great. Uh, For example, they're projecting that their holiday sales will be the same as last year, which is significantly, would be significantly worse performance than Apple had been predicting a few months back. And they're also starting to see, well, they are seeing significant weakness in the Chinese market. So here we have a global tech company under pressure. And that company, Apple, is a major payer of corporation tax in this country.
1: Yeah, it's one of the big 10, isn't it, that we always list as the top 10 taxpayers in in Ireland uh, on the corporation tax side.
2: Well, one assumes it is, Chris. They yes, obviously we, don't it, tell us.
1: It's not published, but we, no. we, I think we can make an educated guess there. We can, yeah. And we've been saying since the beginning of 2023 that the super soar away days of corporate profits growth for these companies, at least for the next year or two, is over, and that therefore the super soar away growth in Irish corporation tax revenues, with a bit of a lag, is also over. The big driver, of course, of the, shall we say, relatively disappointing corporation tax over the last three months is more, as I understand it, the pharmaceutical and chemical sector than the tech sector. But I do think that we are now in for a period of, well, we clearly have been for three months, and we need to be much more cautious about our estimates for corporation tax revenues going forward. And all the warnings that we and the Department of Finance and IFAC have been given about taking these revenues for granted, I think have been very well made. And the chickens are coming home to roost now, aren't they?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I think they are. Um, I, I don't want to come across as too alarmist about this, but the one thing that is clear is that the rapid growth we've seen in corporation tax take for some years now um, has plateaued and it's starting to come under pressure. We, we have discussed this so many times, but the big mistake that was made in the run-up 2007-2008 was spending money aggressively, at least government spending money aggressively, on the back of a tax take that eventually collapsed when the property sector collapsed. And of course, the problem with public spending is that once you commit to it, it becomes virtually permanently embedded in the system and is very difficult to roll back on from a political perspective. So the risk now is that we just continue to spend money aggressively. As we are doing, and this talk about fiscal prudence and so on, Uh, to use a term you used earlier, is bollocks. But, you know, the the danger now is that uh, with this weakness coming true on the corporation tax side, you know, it could highlight a serious flaw in the fiscal situation here. So we need to be very careful about it. I'm I'm not being alarmist about it, but I do think uh, there is certainly cause for some caution at this stage. Can I say two things about uh, that,
1: Jim? One, uh, sort of a a general policy point, which is that uh, we're very good at trying, when I say we, I mean everybody, including the Department of Finance and the Finance Minister and various politicians. They forecast what the budget will be next year, and there's a terrible tendency to try and spend or tax or or make policy changes on the basis of what they think tax revenues are likely to be next year. It would be much better to make it backward-looking. And to say, well, we'll wait to see what corporation and other tax revenues are going to be before we actually decide what we're going to do with them. Deciding in advance what you're going to do with hypothetical revenues that may not turn up is one ingredient that I think that we could do something about. Pretending to spend temporary revenues as permanent ones, of course, is the other, the other big no-no. But I promised in the intro that we wouldn't engage in politics. So I'm going to break that promise immediately, inevitably, and ask you a political question. One of the things that we said around Budget 2024 is why, in the name of God, are they doing this? Because they never get, in previous budgets, when they've done exactly the same kind of giveaway thing, why are they doing this in the expectation that it will give them a political uh, dividend, that their opinion poll ratings will be benefited from this, in the case of Budget 24, a f- $14 billion giveaway budget. And what's happened to their standing in the
2: opinion polls, Jim? Yeah, it's declined, Chris. And d- during the week, we had the publication of Consumer Confidence. And that is up from 58.8 in September to 60.4 in October. And this, this conference reading was taken post the budget. OK, so there was a little bit of a budget bounce in Consumer Confidence. But last weekend, we got the latest opinion polls showing actually government Um, was lower than before the budget. So not alone did government not get uh, a sort of a temporary post-budget bounce, it actually deteriorated, okay, in terms of the opinion polls. So, and we said it at budget time, Chris, despite a 14 billion budget, despite the fact they threw money at everything, um, it wasn't going to improve their political prospects. And in fact, it has damaged even further the political prospects of government. So I think but every day that passes, the likelihood of Sinn Féin being government the next time actually increases, okay? Um, I think there's no doubt about that. And and there's, there's a couple of factors at play here. Go back to the issue that housing is the biggest issue, particularly for young people. And, you know, as far as young people are concerned, government maybe making some progress, but nothing like the sort of progress that should be made. But while you were sunning yourself
1: on your beach in Portugal, Jim, I think there was some house building data out in Ireland. And it seems that uh, we are building lots of houses this year. Is that right?
2: Yeah, well, Chris, we're going to build probably close to 30,000. Okay, Uh, but we should be building 40, 45 because there is still massive catch-up to be done. And in fact, it's, it's interesting, and I, I'm going to talk about it in a few minutes, but the IMF today on Friday came out with its latest uh, report or assessment of the Irish economy. And, and, and one of the points it made was the necessity to advance structural reforms to boost housing supply, strengthen productivity, and accelerate the green transition. And it spoke about the need to expedite the planning process, modernise regulations around housing, and it also suggested, and this will go down really well, that rent caps should be scrapped, that they just fuel demand and curb supply. So housing is really where it's at, and the budget. Can I I just say
1: something about which it's really interesting? It's one of the things that I've noticed around the place. You've heard me say many, many times that housing is a global phenomena, and that you can pick up a newspaper from countries as far apart as Australia, Portugal, and the United States and Canada, and the words housing and crisis are all over the media. One of the things that seems to be happening is that other political parties around the world have noticed this is a politically salient issue, just as Sinn Féin were very early to recognise it in Ireland. But one of the things that is happening is that right-wing parties around the world in certain countries are starting to talk about the housing crisis and adopt it as their issue, as their platform for curing and doing all the sorts of things that Sinn fein they're going to do from a left-wing perspective. And in particular, the Republicans in the United States apparently have decided that the US housing crisis is something that they need to adopt as a mantra, as a thing for their re-election prospects next year, both in terms of the presidential elections and the House and the Senate and all that kind of stuff. And that from a right wing perspective, they are going to be the party that cures the US housing crisis. And one or two other parties right-wing parties in other countries are adopting similar rhetoric so it seems that the horseshoe theory of politics where right and left wing eventually end up meeting each other is now applying to the housing problem globally and it doesn't matter which side of the political fence that you're on what the one thing that you have to do to get elected or re-elected is promise to be the party that can cure the housing crisis.
2: Yeah, it is extraordinary the way we we get this pivot from the left meeting the right somewhere in the centre or at the back of the centre, whatever way I want to describe it. During the week, I was at a I was speaking at a briefing for the SIMI and Ivan Yates was chairing a former Fine Gael minister, broadcaster, many of uh, former owner of a, a horse betting business and so on. So but. He certainly regards himself as a political pundit of note and he was predicting that Sinn Féin would get at least 70 seats in the next election. He's basing that on a few things, but basically, okay, the housing issue is obviously very important, but the second piece is that just basically uh, that Fine Fine Gael have been in power since 2011 and regardless of how a party in power has been doing in government and, you know, The jury's out. I actually think Fine Gael has done a pretty decent job, notwithstanding my reservations about the housing side, but the economy has performed reasonably well. Oh, come on, Jim, give them more credit than that. Reasonably well? I mean... Uh, Yeah, sorry. Yeah, the economy has... Compare
1: Ireland in 2023 to Ireland in 2011.
2: Yeah, well... Give me a break. Absolutely, Chris. Listen, I'm a Fine Gael voter, and I'll be voting Fine Gael in the next election, okay? Your blue shirt, yeah. Well, Whatever. Um, and and the, the thing that disillusions me about Fine Gael is that um, I would have always voted from on the basis that, in theory, it was a party slightly right of centre from an economic perspective, slightly left of centre from a social perspective. But I, I don't see Fine Gael anymore as a remotely right of centre party. I mean, if you look at the growth in public spending, if you look at the level of government intervention in the economy and so on, um, I would regard Fine Gael's economic policies as pretty, uh, well, slightly, at, at least to the left of centre at this juncture. Uh, but anyway, be, be that as it may, that's, I, I don't think our listeners be particularly interested in what my voting preferences would be. But um, the point Ivan Yates was making that a party in government since 2011 that it naturally runs out of road, okay? And we've seen that with Tony Blair and the, the, the new Labour government. Well, it was Gordon Brown eventually. But all all these things come to a natural conclusion. And, and there has to be a strong sense that for Fine Gael government, it's now reaching that point of natural conclusion. So in other words, you could say, regardless of what they do, uh, they're unlikely to be part of the next government anyway. That's become way too political, Chris. I think,
0: so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Just to look at the Irish, the other Irish economic data, uh, we got the unemployment situation to October, 4.8% unemployment rate, up from 4.7% the previous month, up from 4.5% a year ago, um, an increase of 13,300 in the year. So what that tells us is that the labour market is still strong, but not surprisingly, uh, as is showing true almost everywhere now, we're starting to see a little bit of weakness creep into the labour market performance. I'd be surprised if it were otherwise, given the global situation, given the sort of increase we've seen in interest rates. The services sector PMI for Ireland was published. It dropped for the sixth straight month in a row. Okay, it still came in at 52.6%, down from 545 in October. It was... Basically, the softest pace of expansion in the services sector since November 22. Um, and there's a few interesting points about it. Tourism leisure is one of the sectors that has actually contracted. And, you know, that kind of flies in the face of what the government did with the VAT rate for the tourism sector from the 1st of September. Uh, but that's something I've spoken about many times. And the other area of weakness was on the technology, media and telecom side. And I think that weakness, Chris, kind of feeds into the narrative about what's happening on the corporation tax side. As we have said so many times on this podcast over the last couple of years, everything is connected to everything else. Okay. There, Indeed. There, there, there is no doubt about that. So a little bit of weakness coming through on the tech side, which has been reflecting the corporation tax take as well. Um, and the, the, the I, I guess the really interesting point is that the input cost inflation has eased to a 30-month low and the output cost inflation has slowed to the second weakest over the past two years. So what's all of this telling us? It's telling us there's a bit of weakness coming through, an easing of growth. Inflationary pressures are gradually easing.
1: A hundred years ago, Jim, when I was a very junior economist, believe it or not, one of the key global economic indicators was Belgian industrial production. For all sorts of reasons, we regarded Belgium as a bellwether for what was happening in the world economy. And there were good reasons for that. They've, of course, subsided and we look at far more complicated and nuanced things now. But I think one of the things that's really interesting that's emerging from everything that we've been talking about there, and indeed lots of analysis elsewhere, is that I wonder whether the correlation between the irish economy and the us economy means that ireland is the new belgium and that in many ways if you look at just overall economic performance ireland's been very highly highly correlated more with the us than the eu we've been banging on about for ages about eu economic weakness irish economic strength but we've also been banging on about us economic strength we've been very correlated with the us and now we're talking about a little bit of weakness coming into the us labour market and a little bit of weakness coming into the Irish labour market, rising unemployment, slightly weaker than expected, job creation than previously expected. So I wonder whether we're just, in Ireland, a proxy for the US economy these days.
2: Of course we are. I think there's no doubt about that, Chris. Um, We are the 51st state of the United States in many ways. That's not talked about an awful lot, is it? No, it's not. No, no, it's it's not indeed. Uh, But we are very, very different than, for example, France or Germany, you know, or the Netherlands. There's no doubt. Well, maybe we have more in common with the Netherlands, but certainly in terms of France and Germany, we're totally different. We've much more in common with North America, particularly the United States. And and perhaps it does represent something very positive that the US economy is still proving, you know, quite resilient. um, but but certainly slowing slightly. At slowing slightly, there's no doubt about that. Chris, a couple of points I just want to wrap up on on the Irish story. The Banking and Payments Federation published its latest SME monitor, and the thing that was highlighted there from the SME sector was skills shortages, particularly in the construction sector. And of course, that feeds in to the ability of the construction sector to deliver the housing supply that's required. And the message that came out was that there is a need to really ramp up the apprenticeship program and also to look at the work permit situation to ensure that we have the necessary skills in sectors like construction that will be required to drive the economy into the future. The motor industry is another industry of power construction where this is a major thing because with the um, increasing prevalence of electric vehicles, the technical skills required to service and maintain electric vehicles is very different from the internal combustion engine. So, that industry needs a massive investment in apprenticeship as well. So, but I, but, I, but I do think that that Banking and Payments Federation survey is interesting in terms of what it tells us about the pressures for the SME sector. The final piece, which I've mentioned already, but just to pick out some of the key points, the International Monetary Fund published its latest outlook on the Irish economy. And, um, okay, it's painted a reasonably upbeat assessment of how ireland has been doing Uh, but some of the warnings that it issued there's no rocket science here chris we've spoken about it many others have spoken about it the need to maintain fiscal prudence in order to support disinflation and build buffers for future shocks and and also you know the aging population and climate change Um, heightened vigilance to be given to financial stability risks. I'm not actually sure what that really means because uh, given that our banking system is not lending very much anyway at the moment, um, I'm not clear where the risks are at this point relative to where we were back in 2007, for example. And the the, the, the really important point is, I will repeat it, about the need to advance structural reforms to boost housing supply, strengthen productivity and accelerate the green transition. And and in relation to housing, I said they argued about the need to expedite the planning process to modernise regulations and also making the point that the rent caps should be scrapped as they fuel demand and curb the supply of housing. Uh, That's a message that will not fall well with the left in this country. But I guess... um, would the left ever have taken the IMF said seriously anyway?
1: Not at all. Not at all. I mean, the IMF stands for International Monetary Fund. The the hard left have for many years used those three letters to, to describe it in far more lurid terms, shall we say. And uh, there is no love lost be- between the left and the IMF. And the IMF is being politically tone deaf or tin-eared there. Um, it should... I think, do a much better job of trying to convince people of the economic and therefore political wisdom of economic logic and just uh, sim- simply defying reality, which is what these sorts of policies do, um, is, is counterproductive. It doesn't achieve the aims that the left wing policymaker would actually want them to achieve. But uh, we're, we're, we're um, blowing into the wind there, I think, I suspect, Jim.
2: Yeah, I think we are. Chris, that's probably enough in Ireland. uh, A lot there. Um, Looking at the non-farm payrolls in the United States, 150,000 increase, um, down from 297,000 in September. But over the last three months, there's been an average increase of 204,000 in non-farm payrolls. That's a pretty steady labour market performance?
1: At this stage in the cycle, it's great. Um, It's not as great as it has been. There was a downward revision to the previous month, you might have noticed. So the last month, I think it was August, wasn't as good as previously uh, thought. These numbers are always subject to revision. The wage numbers were fine. Uh, There doesn't appear to be any kind of wage explosion going on in the United States. And it is consistent with the description the US labour market is slowing slightly. And the jobs miracle is still intact, but it isn't as big a one as we previously thought. And this is the way slowdowns usually start. It could be temporary. We could get a, you know, a big acceleration, but it's beginning, I think, to feel like the U.S., uh, combined with the other data that we were describing there of PMIs in particular, uh, things are starting to slow and the effect of higher interest rates starting to be felt. It's taken a while. But I I do think that we are in that kind of environment. Uh, More importantly, I do think that all of that is consistent with continued slowdown uh, at best and at worst stability in inflation. US inflation is down at the 3%-ish level now. And I think that secretly the Federal Reserve will be quite happy with that level of inflation. It won't be seeking to drive it quickly down to its 2% target. And I think that the all-important bond market, the thing that we have been banging on about for ages now, has taken notice of this on both sides of the Atlantic for similar and different reasons. And this week has been a big move in bonds. Uh, Bond yields have fallen a lot. Um, If you look at interest rate expectations here in the UK... From just a few short weeks ago, uh, we've been thinking that interest rates, the market was saying that interest rates would go up to 6% from their current five, five and a quarter level. Uh, Now the markets are saying quite emphatically that interest rates aren't going to change very anytime soon. Uh, That, of course, could all be upset next week if we get economic data going one way or the other but it's been a very big move in bonds and that's produced in the last few days at least a much better environment for equities because equities were starting to notice these higher bond yields and say hello uh, we, we cannot sustain current stock market levels if bond markets stay where they are or should I say where they were and so it's good news for equities that bond yields are coming down. Of course one of the things that all of that discussion completely ignores is the geopolitical environment. It's a very narrowly focused discussion on the growth and inflation outlook and what it means for bonds, what it means for asset prices generally. And it really ignores the geopolitical situation and says that anything that comes out of, for example, the Middle East is not going to be important for, for asset markets. I think that's a very dangerous assumption, personally, uh, given the uncertainties associated with what is going on In Israel and Gaza. Uh, It could yet turn very nasty indeed. We all, of course, hope not. But I do think that uh, this better mood that we've seen in financial markets, bond markets and stock markets, certainly in the second half of this week, uh, I would treat it with a great deal of caution and take it with a pinch of salt um, to the point where um, unusually for me, I, I tend not to do anything with my own pension. Uh, arrangements. I just let them ride and try very hard not to look at them other than once a year. Um, I've taken advantage of the last few days of equity markets relative strength and moved some money into cash and bonds. And uh, that's very, very unusual for me. That's not an investment recommendation, I would stress, if any central bank regulator is listening. But that is more my thinking that uh, now is the time to express a wee bit of caution and to think that markets are getting a little bit too narrow in their focus on what's going on domestically and has taken their eye off the geopolitical ball. Of course, the outlook for individual companies is very important for the stock market as a whole. And Apple normally is a bellwether. The market wouldn't normally be up over 1% if Apple evening before has produced weaker than expected or disappointing results. So I'm A wee bit sceptical about the the market's reaction to all of this news. I think it's a wee bit myopic. But I have to say, of course, that I respect what the market does. Uh, I might just be creating a narrative fallacy, something I accuse other people of doing a lot. Just to let you know, Jim, I'm feeling far more cautious than the average market participant seems to be at the moment. don't know what you think.
2: If you look at the global geopolitical backdrop and the economic ramifications of that and the potential for this situation to really deteriorate, um, you know, you, you, you're hearing stories about Hezbollah lobbying lobbing missiles into Israel. Likewise, they're coming from Yemen. So that that whole situation just has the potential to erupt into something really, really dramatic. I guess and the market
1: it, is saying that it thinks that it isn't going to erupt in that it way.
2: It does. It does. It's, it's saying that. Yeah.
1: But it may it may well be right. The market has access to far more information about these things
2: than I. Um, and, on a and, risk-reward basis, you'd be nervous at the moment. Well, moment I am, as that. I say. Yeah, Yes, yeah. yeah. so, so I, I would share that, I have to say. Uh, but I guess there are many times over the last three years when I've been feeling very nervous about equity markets that I felt they were at levels that weren't really justified. But yes, with the exception of last year, equity markets continue to deliver very strongly. Yeah. If you look yeah. at the year to date, it performs very strong still. Uh,
1: As I always say, as a rule of thumb, it's usually completely and utterly wrong to sell equities, particularly from a pensioner's point of view, from a long-term saving point of view. If you've got enough time, equities will always, historically at least, give you a a handsome return. So I've gone against, in a way, my own instincts, but at the moment I do feel very cautious.
2: Well, what differentiates you from me, Chris, is that given my age profile, I can afford to take a very long-term perspective on investment markets at this juncture.
1: Jim, I don't think we're that different in age. I'm a little bit older than you.
2: <laughs> Seeing where you're awake on a Friday evening. Uh, Chris, I'd I just like to make one final point before I wrap. Isabel Schnabel. I We know her well. Yeah, I, I probably pronounced that totally incorrectly, but she is an executive board member of the European Central Bank. She's on leave from the University of Bonn. She was speaking at a the Economics Club of New York yesterday She was talking about inflation expectations being fragile and that the potential for renewed supply side shocks can destabilize those inflation expectations and that the ECB cannot close the door to further rate hikes. But the bit of her speech that really tickled me was the fact that she said it took a year to get inflation to 2.9% and will take twice as long to get from here down to 2%. I mean, that's how, that's an inflation
1: forecast, Jim.
2: Yes. How can a serious central bank come out and say something like that? Well,
1: I'd say a few things about that, Jim. First of all, uh, with all due respect to my academic friends who may be listening to this podcast, there are honourable exceptions to this terrible generalisation, which I'm about to paint. So please don't be offended. Don't take this personally. But I think in universities perform two main functions. One is clearly to educate the young, and they and they generally do a magnificent job, and I, and I applaud them for that. The other reason for universities to exist is that they take people and turn them into lecturers and professors who would otherwise do a great deal of harm if they were out in active life, in real life. They keep, in a form of institutionalization, people who should not be in the real world making real-life decisions because they are of a certain personality type. And you said that that particular lady was uh, on leave from a university. I think given the remarks that she made and the complete bollocks, as I said earlier on, that the ECB keeps making over many years of its existence, that some of its university-based members on secondment should never have gone on secondment and should have stayed in their universities. Because you're quite right to say that for somebody that has made such a complete mess of their inflation forecasts when all of this inflation started. Remember, they were very much in teen transitory and were very slow to raise interest rates, yada, yada, yada. Um, to have no humility over the fact that they've made such a mess of their inflation forecasting, to then make very confident inflation forecasts using exactly the same models that got it wrong at the very beginning, it displays a certain lack of self-awareness, in my opinion. And to say that with absolute confidence it's going to take another two years to move From around three percent that we are at the moment down to two, it may be right, but it probably isn't, as I think we all know.
2: Chris, on my own forecasting record, um, the most recent one has a fifty percent success rate. The last pod, second last podcast we did, you threw a curveball at me, asked me number one what I expected the ECB to do last Thursday, and I said that the ECB would not hike. Correct. You asked me who would win the Rugby World Cup. And given the rugby pundit that I am, I opted for New Zealand. I was obviously wrong there. So 50%. So, you're
1: yeah, just a coin toss, really, Jim, in terms of your forecasting, modelling and ability.
2: Chris, have a great weekend. <laughs> All the best, talk.
1: mate. Cheers.
2: You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. Hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.